Hello, welcome to NewsHour. From the BBC World Service, it comes to you live from London. I'm Razia Iqbal. Today, accusations of plagiarism against the French far-right leader Marine Le Pen. Her party says she deliberately copied a political rival's speech to make a point. So what impact will it have on the presidential election? That's our top story today. Also, why ocean science will benefit from a Norwegian billionaire deciding that he wants to give most of his wealth away. He truly believes that uh, the ocean has given him so much. He kind of feels obliged to give something back to the ocean and the environment. And a cello and a light-winged dryad of the trees. We'll hear a modern ode to a nightingale and, of course, we'll make time for a cuppa. We begin, though, with France and the presidential election. If this was an exam, the candidate caught committing plagiarism would be disqualified and would fail. But this is politics and the candidate is still standing. The stakes are very high and the drama is still being played out. Here's what's happened. The far-right candidate in the presidential election, Marine Le Pen, has been accused of plagiarising a recent speech by an opponent. Video footage shows her echoing, word for word, her conservative rival, François Fillon, who was knocked out in the first round of voting. A YouTube channel, Ridicule TV, which is close to Mr Fillon's Republican Party, posted a video showing the two speeches side by side, with Ms Le Pen matching her former rival word for word. Here's a flavour of it. Trois façades maritimes. La Manche et la mer du Nord, couvertes sur le monde anglo-saxon et sur l'immensité septentrionale. La façade atlantique qui nous ouvre depuis des siècles, le grand large qui nous livre ses aventures. La façade méditerranéenne, foyer de civilisation parmi les plus vieilles et les plus riches d'histoire. You get the picture. It's worth noting the video is edited to match the relative speaking speed of the two politicians. The National Front Secretary General, Nicolas Bay, said, told reporters that Ms Le Pen's use of the phrases showed voters that she was not sectarian. Of course, there are a few lines that were delivered by François Fillon, and we own up to it. It's a small nod to a beautiful passage on France that we wanted to use for ourselves. They were taken from a speech that was very long, lasting an hour in total. I think it's also a way of saying that in France there's no sectarianism, and when one of our competitors in the first round speaks of France with words that value France, we can happily use them for ourselves. Let's speak to the BBC's James Reynolds, who joins us on the line now from Paris. Uh, So uh, the defence there, James, uh, deliberate plagiarism. Are people uh, buying that uh, defence? Yeah, that's not how it's meant to work, is it? Uh, you, you, you can't just say, well, Abraham Lincoln did that brilliantly, so I'm going to do it without attribution. Uh, as essentially, it might be that they've just got caught and have come up with a rather imaginative answer. We all know that Marine Le Pen's campaign is going for the voters of François Fillon. So, of course, what better way to go for the voters than by going with his actual words? The trouble is, if you're going to do that, probably, don't, probably better not to get caught. So uh, they definitely have been caught, uh, in inverted commas. Uh, what, what impact is it having on the campaign, if, if, if that is discernible at this stage? Not a huge impact. I think what we have to bear in mind is this. The words themselves by François Fillon clearly were not that great. If they were that great, if they were that powerful, 
he wouldn't have been knocked out. He would have been thrown into the second round, uh, looking rather quizzically at, at opponents who would have stolen his words. He was a defeated candidate. Uh, so there's no magic in particular in the message that he was bringing across. Marine Le Pen's campaign, for whatever reason, decided to, uh, to try to repeat it to his supporters. But nevertheless, it may be that it doesn't have a huge impact. Is there, is there any sense at all, then, in, in the context of what you've just outlined, that uh, Marine Le Pen is being ridiculed or perhaps she is only by those who would obviously oppose her anyway? Well, potentially, given the fact that the YouTube channel is called Ridicule TV, uh, almost the, the name gives it away, the title gives it away. But I think what really has been exposed more than anything else in this is Marine Le Pen's electoral strategy. She needs to. She has to get François Fillon's supporters. The trouble she faces is that François Fillon himself, within minutes of the end of the first round, said that he would support Emmanuel Macron. So she's got to try to distance herself from him a little bit, but go for his supporters. At the same time, she's got to try to grab left-wing supporters as well. So it's a difficult series of appeals that she has to make. James Reynolds uh, joining us live from Paris. Thanks very much. Well, if Marine Le Pen is going to win on Sunday, she will need to expand her support base, as we were hearing from uh, James Reynolds there. Well, James Naughty now reports she's already had more recoups than her opponents expected a year ago and from some surprising parts of the political spectrum. May Day in France and the left is en fête. Lots of red flags. But who are they voting for on Sunday? Solide et solidaire. There's a film they show at National Front rallies with a string of Frenchmen and women lamenting the state of the nation. A nurse, a policeman, a teacher, a student, a soldier. They all end by saying, I need Marine. Marine, Marine. Her gamble is that she can close the wide gap with Emmanuel Macron, the polls say it's 20% or more, by deliberately bringing to the boil that simmering feeling that it is time for a shock. Now, I'm in the south this morning. In the first round, she won every department touching the Mediterranean coast, from Spain to Italy. The south has long been the National Front homeland, But now you can travel all the way up the Rhone Valley through country that she won in the first round until you reach another party fortress, the Industrial North, where she won all the departments strung along France's border from the English Channel until you hit the Swiss Alps. That's the scale of the change since her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, squeaked into the second round in 2002, shocking most of France, and was humiliated by Jacques Chirac in the runoff. Whatever happens on Sunday, it won't be like that. Because of the state of France, the sound of a steel mill in the Fench Valley in Lorraine, the territory known as the Grand East. But most of the plants here have gone, and their skeletonic remains give the landscape a distinctly eerie look. Unemployment is at 20%. In 2007, as Nicolas Sarkozy was candidate for the presidential election, he came to Gondrange, it's also in the French Valley, and he promised that the gold factory will not close. It closed. 
in 2012, during the campaign, François Hollande came and he promised that the coal factory from Florange would not close. It closed. Cédric Langroth broadcasts on Radio France in Met, the regional hub. The mainstream political parties were unable to deal with the problem and they made promises they didn't hold and that's unacceptable for the people there because they lost their jobs. And Marine won the first round in this department although it's always been the land of the left. There are communist mayors in several of these towns. But it's changing. Remy Dick is the 22-year-old centre-right mayor of Florange. I have the example of my father. My father just worked in the industry his whole life. Enterprises uh, in which he worked, seven of them go out of France. So he was uh, seven times unemployed. And Cédric Langroth points to the tide among voters that Marine Le Pen has been able to ride. The history, the political history, was more left-handed, with communism also in this valley, is now going to the right, actually, and to the right extreme. We have a Front National mayor, the youngest. Before, he was a union worker, actually. He was from the left, and he went to the Front National. You hear it everywhere. No, 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 no. no. These two retired men have always voted socialist, but no more. A friend of theirs is horrified. They say they want an iron lady to lead France. A little to the south, to Strasbourg, and a young voter. He's going with Le Pen in the second round because he wants one thing above all, Frexit. I was born in 1991. The year after, Maastricht was signed. We have the massive propaganda since our childhood in the, in the schools. Uh, then uh, you visit the European Parliament and everything else. This last great thing France made was in 2003 not to go uh, to war in Iraq. And uh, since then, we are not an independent country again. Back in the French Valley... They'll still be arguing. This is the febrile atmosphere that has brought climate change to French politics. Near here in the south is a department around Toulouse where the first round winner was Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the candidate from the left, whose Euroscepticism and demonization of globalization sounds to many voters to be in harmony with Marine Le Pen's. Forget the simplicities of the left-right spectrum. Some of his voters will be voting for her on Sunday. Cédric Langroth in Metz. We love revolution in France. And we love the, the way we represent ourselves the revolution. So a world turned upside down is deep in the French psyche. <laughs> I don't know, but it's part of our history. We often forget... What came just after the revolution, the, the big revolution from 1789, it came Napoleon, it came everything after that, and that we forget, usually. Now, a succession of centre-right and socialist leaders have all been telling their supporters to vote Macron to keep her out. The polls and the odds are against her. But she talks as if something has been written in the stars. And it's certain that even if she falls short, 
there's an anger in her wake that will persist long after Sunday. That was uh, the BBC's James Nochty reporting. And uh, NewsHour's James Kumrasamy will be back in France and reporting for us on the last few days of this uh, critical campaign. And, of course, on the aftermath of the vote, which takes place on Sunday. Just time to remind you about our podcast. If you ever miss the programme live uh, on air, you can download our podcast, which is updated twice a day. BBC NewsHour is what you need to put into your search engines. You can subscribe to the feed. And uh, apart from anything else, it's free and it means you need never be without us. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Razia Iqbal. This is NewsHour. Coming up, decoding the genome of the tea plant. Even though it's one of the most popular drinks in the world, actually very little is known scientifically about tea. Tea is such a huge, huge subject, and you could spend a lifetime trying to learn about it. It's one of those things where the more you learn, the more you realise that you don't know about tea. That interview coming up in about 20 minutes' time. Our headlines this hour, the French National Front has shrugged off an act of apparent plagiarism by its presidential candidate, Marine Le Pen. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has said he might end all initiatives to join the European Union. China has demanded the immediate suspension of a US anti-missile system installed in South Korea and athletes have reacted angrily to European anti-doping proposals that could see them lose world records set before 2005. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour live from the BBC. Now, children across many African countries miss an alarming amount of school because of problems with their teeth. That's according to the World Dental Foundation. It says a lack of fluoride in toothpaste and very little dental care means nine out of ten children have some form of tooth decay. The BBC's Tamsin Ford has been looking at the problem in Abidjan, Ivory Coast's economic capital. It's biology for these high school students in Trishville, a suburb of Abidjan. Professor Kwadio Yao is teaching them about bacteria, specifically about bacteria of the mouth. So he's just asking the class who's had um, some sort of tooth decay in the past, and more than half of the kids in here have put their hands up. There are nearly 4,000 children in the school, and for Professor Yao, absenteeism because of toothache is a major problem. Every morning, children come to us complaining of toothache. Because we have a clinic not far from the school, we send them there to see the doctor. But this is a real problem. So I'm just asking who's lost teeth because of toothache. And about five kids here put their hands up. Let's speak to this one. Tu peux Okay, this boy's just showing me that one of his teeth is missing. He said it was hurting, so he pulled it out. He's saying he pulled it out himself. Oh, ça fait mal? Ismail is only 13 years old. To him, losing one adult tooth perhaps doesn't seem too high a price to end the pain. But he may not realise his toothless smile 
could lead to a life-threatening illness. 33-year-old Estelle Tralu sits in the garden of the block of flats where she works as a housemaid. She tells me what happened to her aunt just last month. She was around the same age as me, says Estelle, in her 30s or 40s. She had toothache. Her whole face was swollen. It got so bad that she went to the hospital where they pulled her tooth out, she says. After that, I called her daughter, but I missed her. She had already died. Estelle's aunt went to the hospital at the last possible moment, but it was too late. An infection had already got into her blood. That's what killed her, Estelle says. La bouche est la porte d'entrée de beaucoup d'affections. That's Dr. Alan Diaha, a dental surgeon and the president of the country's Association of Oral Medicine. His difficult task is to get across to people how dangerous tooth decay can be. Around 65% of the population suffers from dental cavities. Unfortunately, there are only around 700 dentists in the entire Ivory Coast. For a population of 23 or 24 million inhabitants, it's not enough. A drop in children going to school is a problem for the future. Voici Mini Bros et Big Bros. Comme beaucoup de familles, le soir, elle oublie parfois de se laver les dents. Meet Little Brush, Big Brush, the stars of a new Unilever campaign. Companies knowing it makes good business sense are also trying to get children to brush their teeth. Audacieux, il n'a peur de rien. Wow, nom d'une antilope. D'où venez-vous? 21 cartoons delivered by Facebook Messenger onto people's phones. Big Brush, the mum, and Little Brush, the daughter, travel around the world doing teeth-brushing challenges. The idea is, after 21 days of the cartoons, families will change their behaviour and start taking care of their mouths. I show Estelle the first episode. Ça va aider ou non? Qu'est-ce que tu penses? Ça va aider les gens de brosser les dents? Brosser les dents trois fois par jour. Yes, this will help people to brush their teeth, she says. Back at the school, I have one more question to ask the students. Levez les mains si tu as brossé les dents ce matin avant l'école. Okay, I'm asking who cleaned their teeth this morning before coming to school, and everyone's put up their hands. Mais c'est vrai? Tu es sûr ou tu levais les mains parce que ils sont là? Super, merci tout le monde. The BBC's uh, Tamsin Ford reporting from Abidjan. Now, a reclusive Norwegian billionaire has decided to give away most of his money. Shell Inya Ruka told the newspaper Aftenposten that he wants to go back, give back to society what he calls the lion's share of his $2 billion wealth, and he'll start with the construction of a ship to research the ocean and how to clean it up. The vessel will operate in partnership with the Worldwide Fund's Norwegian unit. I've been talking to the man who interviewed him, Steinar Dirnes. He began by telling me about the billionaire's profile in Norway. He has a very high profile, although late the last years has been kind of reclusive. But in general, he's a very famous person in Norway. He came from a working class background. It's a true fairy tale story. He started as a kind of a high school dropout. He had dyslexia. Uh, he 
his parents didn't really know what to do with him. He had two DUIs in his uh, youth. Uh, so the solution, they kind of found out, they asked a relative if he could hire a guy at his fishing boat as a teenager. I started out as a couple of years as a fisherman in Norway. Then he relocated to Seattle in around 1980 and dressed this kind of history. 15 years later, he was a billionaire in Kroner, based on fisheries, real estate, shipbuilding, sports retail industry. Came back to Norway in 95-96. He then raided uh, one of the biggest industrial companies in Norway, uh, Aker, and that became kind of a hell of a story. So, so as you say, a real fairy tale story. So it starts out with working class roots and, and ends up being a, a billionaire. But as you say, a, a recluse. How did that interview come about and what was he like in the interview? The interview came about that the leader of WWF uh, in Norway, she wanted Rocky to do an interview. In general, he does not give interviews, but she kind of convinced him that if he do an interview, the attention will be bigger for the course. So he then relented and he did an interview. And during the interview, it was supposed to last like 30 minutes. It lasted 60 minutes because she was so passionate about this. So th- this this is one of the things that he's going to be giving his money to do, which is the construction of a ship to research the ocean and how to clean it up. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And since he has spent so much time on the ocean, first of all, as a fisherman in Alaska in, in, in the 80s, he's very close to the sea. It's meant a lot to him. That's the way he has created his fortune. And for the moment, he's not a fisherman now. He's more like a oil tycoon. Uh, his biggest asset is uh, Auger BP. So it, it is interesting, isn't it, that he has made uh, a lot of his money from being an oil baron and the products that come from oil are the kinds of things that pollute the sea. Is is there a sense in your view that he is wanting to somehow make up for how he's made his money to, to try and give something back in that way, that he somehow feels guilty? I'm not sure if guilty is the right word, but he truly believes that uh, the ocean has given him so much. He kind of feels obliged to give something back to the ocean and the environment. That was uh, journalist uh, Steinar Dirnes uh, from the newspaper Afton Post. Lots more to come in the second half of the programme. Do stay with us. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour, available twice each day straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service? The documentary brings to life stories and investigations from across the globe. Or witness remarkable first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Or how about people fixing the world, an antidote to much of the doom and gloom we hear and read in the news. The team explores clever or big ideas trying to solve the problems of the world and investigate whether they actually work. Coming up next, does Britain have any aces up its sleeve in the Brexit negotiations? But first, our daily look at the world of business. Australia has announced sweeping changes to its visa rules, making immigration much harder for skilled workers from overseas. It said the move was aimed at prioritising hiring Australians. The highest proportion of skilled workers in the country are from India. So how has the move gone down there? Our reporter, Sanjoy Majumda, has been finding out. 
Hello, this is Primus. How can I help you? The offices of Primus are located on the top floor of a residential building in a densely populated Delhi neighborhood. It's an immigration agency which helps people migrate to Australia and was set up by Poonam Sharma, who is qualified in Australian immigration law. Today, she's being visited by Aditi Goplani. Last two years, we have been very focused in going to Australia. We started with our skill assessment. We paid around two and a half to three thousand dollars. Now that the time that I've completed all the requirements, suddenly will I get to know that everything's just over? Aditi has just found out that her dream of migrating to Australia has been shattered after a change in the country's immigration laws. She spent the last year taking classes, preparing documents, and acquiring extra skills to plan for her move. We spoke to our families that we are finally going, and suddenly something of this was unexpected. They should decide whether it is right for somebody who has actually invested big time in this process. And I would really want them to peek into our lives that it has actually stopped because something was not achieved. Under the new visa rules. Australia has made it much harder for skilled workers to migrate to that country. Poonam Sharma says the sudden decision has hurt a lot of people. They have removed 200 occupations on the skilled list. There were people who had had their assessment, who were studying for English, and they have spent time, money, energy, and hopes, but they can't go ahead any longer. But it's not just workers who are affected. More than 30,000 Indians study in Australian schools and universities. Inside a tiny classroom, there are a group of young men and women being taught a lesson in spoken English. The classroom itself is in the basement of a commercial building in one of Delhi's busy markets. Sanjit Gupta runs this institute, Learning Guru. Recently, we have seen that more queries for Australia, mainly because of one reason: that US is rejecting visa and Trump is more strict in visa terms. The ones who were not considering Australia earlier and want to go to US only now they are asking about Australia also. What what are the possibilities if you go there for further education and job prospects and everything? Australia was always seen in India as a country that openly welcomed immigrants. Now it's the latest in a long line of countries to tighten immigration rules. It means that for many Indians looking to go overseas to secure their future, options are running out. That was uh, Sanjoy Majumdar reporting. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal. Now, if you were listening to the programme yesterday, you would have heard the story of a leaked report in the German newspaper Frankfurter Allgemeine Sonntag Zeitung, which suggested there was an awkward dinner last week between the British Prime Minister Theresa May and the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker. Mr Juncker rep- reportedly told the German Chancellor Angela Merkel that Mrs May was deluding herself and living in another galaxy when it came to the issue of Brexit talks. Here's what Thomas Gutschka, the correspondent who got the story from senior EU sources told us. I don't think they have an interest in these talks collapsing, but they want to save the talks and they basically want to send a wake-up call to Downing Street. And their impression on that Wednesday night was that they need to use different channels to get their message across. 
But are all of these leaks counterproductive when it comes to the success of upcoming negotiations? Peter Klepp is from the European Union policy think tank Open Europe. Basically, what the Commission is trying to do is to paint the British as inflexible, deluded. But of course, in reality, I think the negotiations are actually going to go quite smooth, at least in the beginning, because first of all, they want to tackle the terms of Britain's exit. And I don't think that should be too hard, because first of all, then they need to agree the rights of uh, citizens, so whether the British can stay in Europe and whether the uh, EU citizens can stay in Britain. And that's virtually guaranteed, I think. And then also they need to figure out the exit bill uh, that Britain would have to pay. The EU specialty is horse trading. The Commission has leaked that uh, the UK would have to pay up to 63 billion. Britain has said it doesn't have to pay anything, but it is happy to pay something just to keep a friendly relationship. So in all likelihood, they may find each other somewhere in the middle. What sort of difficulties could the United Kingdom cause for the European Union and and particular countries or the kind of processes of the European Union? Both sides can damage each other quite a lot. The UK can damage Mainland Europe, it can uh, say that uh, EU citizens in the UK can no longer stay there. It can restrict the flow of goods from mainland Europe uh, to the UK. But then it would also, of course, inflict harm on the UK economy itself. It's quite clear from everything that senior EU officials have said that they, they're not averse to the UK getting a good deal. But to quote Joseph Muscat, the Prime Minister of Malta, whose country holds this rotating presidency at the moment of the Council of Europe, that whatever deal the United Kingdom gets, it will be fair, but fair needs to be inferior to membership? Because otherwise, what would be the point of membership? That's uh, definitely something that many people in Brussels think. It's what um, a consensus in the member states uh, think. Uh, But I think they're all wrong. (laughs) Because if Britain gets a deal that is less good than its current deal, this can only mean one thing. It can mean that there will be more trade disruption and economic damage. It will mean job losses in Britain, but also uh, on the other side of the channel. I don't think that job losses in mainland Europe will increase the popularity of the EU project. And what's your view of the ability of the United Kingdom team in these Brexit negotiations to, to th- their capabilities to negotiate? Because civil servants inside the European Union have vast amounts of experience in negotiating. What, what about the United Kingdom? Of course, the, the UK has to step up its game there. But Mr. David Davis, so far, I think he has done a fine uh, job. Of course, negotiations haven't properly started, so it's probably a little early to judge. Uh, but I think the tone is right. For example, uh, he has said that it's not because that Britain will gain control over immigration that it wants to restrict immigration. It will actually uh, remain quite open because it's so important for the UK economy. You're possibly the most sanguine person that we've spoken to about this particular issue. I mean, is it rooted for you in the fact that there is always going to be this level of rhetoric when it comes to something where the stakes are so high and that we should just take a breath and watch what happens? I think the stakes were actually much higher in the euro crisis. As important as Brexit is, 
It's nothing compared to the, the euro crisis where we had a uh, risk of sovereign defaults and so on. And even there, you could see all these emotional statements. And I think uh, it was uh, the Spanish Prime Minister Rajoy who uh, was rumored to have threatened to blow up the whole Eurozone project, which would have uh, maybe triggered a, a global systemic financial crisis. You know, I think the biggest risk is that uh, in two years' time, they need to agree a new trade status uh, for the UK. And this is really very short. So they will have to agree some kind of a transitional deal. And things could go off the rails there. I think that they will work out a sensible transition arrangement. So to give a bit more time to then uh, construct a bilateral framework, which will have some similarities with um, the relationship that Switzerland and the European Union have. That was Peter Klepp from the EU policy think tank Open Europe. Now, tea, easily among the most popular drinks in the world and of enormous cultural and economic significance too. Given its popularity and history, it's amazing how little has been known about the genetics of the tea plant. Chinese scientists have been working on this for more than five years and have decoded the genome of the tea plant. In a minute, we'll discuss the science. But first, my editor let me out of the studio in search of a fine cup of tea. So I've just walked a few minutes uh, away, really, from the studio at Broadcasting House and away from the hustle and bustle of Oxford Street, one of the busiest streets in London. We've come into Postcard Tees, and I'm joined now by... Jonathan. And Jonathan, tell me how long you've been here and what kind of teas. Is this teas from all over the world that you, you stock here? So we mainly work in East Asia, China, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Vietnam and India, so really what would be considered the old world for tea production. And would you say that this is a, this is a place for tea purists? If you are completely into non-flavoured teas, teas like poor teas, oolong teas, and single-estate green teas and black teas, then yes, it is. But we also do our own blends. We're not opposed to flavoured teas or herbal teas, so we do sell those as well. So we believe that Tea's for everyone, essentially. Is it possible to try some tea, do you, you think? You can try tea. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> what, what do you let recommend? Me, why do you, you, why you, why do you a, recommend uh, something? The first tea is a tea from a Japanese producer who uses no, not only no artificial fertilisers or pesticides, he doesn't even use natural fertilisers at all, which is very unusual for... A, uh, for a Japanese tea producer and he makes quite an atypical Japanese tea that's fired like a Chinese green so it doesn't have the grassiness and vegetal taste that most Japanese greens have it's much more sweet much more fruity and toasty mm, it's very light and nice actually I like it and then if you like herbal teas this is blend of English herbs and flowers. So there's Roman chamomile, calendula, goldenrod and wormwood. Mm, weirdly, I prefer the Japanese one. 
So what do you think about the, the, the idea that the genome of the, of the tea plant has now been established, which suggests that they might, be able to, they might be able to genetically modify tea or just use it to breed many more varieties? I think it's a good thing that more can be learnt about the tea plant because even though it's one of the most popular drinks in the world, actually very little is known scientifically about tea. Tea is such a huge, huge subject and you could spend a lifetime trying to learn about it. It's one of those things where the more you learn, the more you realise that you don't know about tea. So I think it's very interesting that it's been been mapped because I think it will help out a little bit with learning about tea. That was Jonathan speaking to me at uh, Postcard Teas just a few minutes from our studio in central London. So what exactly can we learn about tea from decoding its genome? Joining me on the line is Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturalist at the Royal Horticultural Society here in the UK. Uh, Welcome to the programme. What does this research tell us then? Well, it's fascinating research. Who would have imagined that... um tea plant would have such an enormous genome, four times the size of a coffee plant genome. So within that genome are very many genes, and those genes code for different proteins, and those proteins lead to the production of the business end of tea, if you like, the caffeine, the flavour. So theoretically, as more is known about the genome of various kinds of uh, uh, cultivars, selected varieties of tea, it would be possible for breeders to make a more targeted approach. Well, well before, we, before we talk about the, the uses of it, just explain to us then where the flavour in tea comes from. Well, the flavour comes from a um, number of chemicals that are synthesised by the tea leaves. Um, what is fascinating is that the same chemicals are found in all kinds of camellias, many of which are grown in people's gardens, um, but then the in the actual tea plant, they're expressed differently, which is why you can only make tea from one kind of camellia. So these uh, flavonoids, as they're called, um, are what gives the tea the, uh, the tea its flavour. And so each tea that has a different flavour will have a different set of gene, a set of uh, genes that code for that flavour, or at least the proteins that make the flavour. And, and is the importance behind this research the idea that it will allow? tea growers in the first instance to, to change the flavour and to and to perhaps produce different varieties of course but even produce tea more efficiently? Well I think that's absolutely right I have to say that uh, at early stages of scientific research like this um, it's more fulfilling one's curiosity about the fantastic activities that plants get up to but in the longer term then yes there's a strong practical application that could Breeding a perennial plant, one that isn't an annual, can take 25 years or more. But if you, can, if you know the genes you're looking for, then you can select for those through seedlings and instead of waiting years for crosses to grow and discover how they perform, you can tell quite early on. So uh, in theory, you could uh, breed caffeine-free teas that would be, more, uh, that would be good for you because the caffeine is a mild poison that keeps you up at night and that sort of thing. So you could have teas that um, had low or no caffeine. In theory, you could breed teas of different flavours that uh, would add to the palette of flavours that's available to tea drinkers. And and just briefly, is what you're talking about um, mean genetically modified tea then? I didn't think that, actually. Um, Genetic modification is certainly one thing that you can do. In fact, I think that... 
the way plant breeding is done, it's much more likely that the knowledge of genome would be used to enhance conventional breeding, where you cross different tea plants to and then look at the progeny. And instead of having to wait years for the progeny to grow and lots of expensive um, grafting onto seedlings to try and uh, get the plants to mature more quickly, okay. uh, you would actually be able to find out the results of your crosses much earlier and have to test fewer seedlings, which okay. greatly reduce the cost and decrease the time. We will leave it there. Guy Barter from the Royal Horticultural Society. Thank you. And a reminder of our top story this hour, the French National Front has shrugged off an act of plagiarism by its presidential candidate, Marine Le Pen. The party's secretary-general, Nicolas Bay, said that Ms Le Pen's use of the phrases showed voters that she was not sectarian. Of course, there are a few lines that were delivered by François Fillon, and we own up to it. It's a small nod to a beautiful passage on France that we wanted to use for ourselves. I think it's also a way of saying that in France there's no sectarianism. Yeah, a couple of other headlines uh, from our newsroom. Islamic State fighters have killed or wounded dozens of refugees in an attack near Syria's border with Iraq. And President Erdogan of Turkey has warned he may give up on the long process of joining the EU if it does not open a new phase of negotiations. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. This week marks the 90th anniversary of the recording of this little bit of broadcasting history. you've heard is a duet between the British cellist Beatrice Harrison and a nightingale that arrived in her garden whenever she played. This duet was broadcast live by the BBC from her garden every year for 12 years and was released on a record in 1927. Now, 90 years on, nightingale duets are once again taking place across the country. The BBC's David Silito went to Kent in the southeast of England to meet the singer Sam Lee to see if the nightingales could be persuaded to sing along to folk songs on a wet and chilly spring night. You can hear the birds. This is the dusk chorus. The fire crackling. We're surrounded by people. And we're here to see, well, here, nightingales. I'm Sam Lee. I'm a folk singer. And I also sing with nightingales. <laughs> and when she hollers Why should I care about a nightingale? Well, they're a very rare bird. Um, but also they're a principal bird in our folklore and our literature and our poetry and prose sing like a nightingale it's part of everyday language exactly once you've heard a nightingale you never forget their sound and how important they are how you know they are the song of the land nightingales in england are a steeply declining species we've lost 62 percent of the population in the last 25 years and you are tom stewart I'm an environmental consultant working with Singing with Nightingales. 
You like your birds. I love my birds. Do we know why we've lost so many nightingales? Some of the coppice habitat in which they've thrived over the centuries has declined not only as, as coppicing has declined, but as introduced species of deer browse it and make it a less dense thicket, and they love a dense thicket. It's just after 11 o'clock. Yeah. We're walking through a hornbeam and oak forest into the habitat of the nightingales to go and set up our stall outside one of their, uh, their shrubs, their thickets. We've been walking for quite a long time. The pitch black. I can't see my feet. It's raining. What was that? Nightingale. Oh, that was? Everything we hear is nightingale. Oh, it's right there. Yeah. Cool. There's one beyond. Oh. They're so loud, aren't they? Yeah. And we're still several metres away. Once you get close, your ears will start to throb with their sound. We can go closer. Oh, we're going to go right up to them. Flipping loud nightingale, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's about how many feet from us? We're about ten feet away from it right now. The nightingale. The nightingale. You completely convinced me. The music, the nightingale, I could hear both. Were you surprised when you first did this? I wasn't surprised. It sort of made perfect sense that one beast of nature would be like this, so extrovert and brazen. It just sort of, it felt like there had to be in England an animal that was not very English in its way. I know there's something very special here and I want people to hear it too. David Silito and the Nightingales, singest of summer in full-throated ease. How wonderful. Now, it's a busy few days for the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. Today, he's meeting the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, and later speaking on the phone to President Trump. Wednesday, it's the turn of the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. In the last hour, he's been speaking about that first engagement with Mrs Merkel. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg has been watching in Moscow. Um, Steve, just uh, tell us what's uh, caught your ear, what you've uh, deduced from that meeting. 
Well, I listened into the press conference that Vladimir Putin and Angela Merkel have just given. No major surprises, no major breakthroughs in Russian-German relations. Uh, the two leaders clashed on Ukraine, for example. Uh, Vladimir Putin blamed the conflict in eastern Ukraine on what he called an anti-constitutional coup in Kiev. Chancellor Merkel said she believed the, the Kiev government had come to power democratically. Um, Chancellor Merkel was asked by a journalist whether she feared Russian interference in Germany's election. She said if there will be disinformation, she gave the example of, a, of one negative story about Germany which had originated in Russia, then we will deal with it. She talked about Russia's hybrid war. Vladimir Putin countered by saying we never interfere in the political processes of other countries. We don't want other countries to interfere in Russia. So I think what we saw in this news conference was the, was the fact that these two leaders have very different worldviews. Angela Merkel, very much a defender of, of the European Union and Western liberal democracy. Um, Vladimir Putin, very much the strong authoritarian leader. Very different and I think the two sides no closer, really, from what we heard at the press conference in, in um, removing their differences. Steve Rosenberg uh, joining us uh, live there from Moscow. Uh, Mr Putin is due to speak to Mr Trump and he will be meeting with the uh, Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. That's it for this edition of the programme. Thanks very much for your company this hour. From me, Razia Iqbal, and the entire NewsHour team. Till the next time. Bye-bye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.